Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike, and this episode we chat with Jack Gwynn on flying the F111 Aardvark. Jack gives some great technical details, personal flying stories, and also recounts his time in Desert Storm. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us out for as little as $1 a month. We're also now uh, part of the Amazon affiliate program, so if you ever see the links in the description box, please click if you're going to buy, because it helps us out and it costs you nothing. So please enjoy. Uh, my very first exposure to aviation was three years old. I got taken up in a Piper Cub on a windy day in the mountains and screamed my lungs out, according to my mother, nonstop. So what year did you actually join the U.S. Air Force? And you could, could you tell us some of the aircraft you trained on? Well, I uh, started pilot training in early 1978. And at that, uh, at that time, everybody went through the same path. Started on the T-37 for about four months, uh, you do instrument, uh, basic contact flying, solo, then instruments, aerobatics, and formation. Pretty aggressive formation flying. And then we all went to the T-38, which is one of the neatest airplanes ever. That's not an airplane you get into, it's an airplane you put on. You wear it like a, like a suit. It's just that, that neat. Anyway, uh, extremely high-performance airplane, even now. Um, and just a blast to fly. But that got more into, uh, into more aggressive flying, uh, certainly faster and more demanding. Uh, but because the Air, the Air Force was training people for any airplane at the time, it really didn't specialize a lot like it could have done. And towards the end of pilot training, they uh, would separate us into two groups. Uh, and one, one group being fighter attack or reconnaissance qualified. So if you're going to go to a fighter-type airplane or be an instructor pilot after pilot training, you had to be FAR qualified. And if you, if you were FAR qualified, you could ask to fly anything. If you weren't FAR qualified, you couldn't ask to fly the, the fighters, etc. And so I was fortunate enough to get put into that fighter group, and I sort of expected I was going to get an F-4 Probably not an F-15. There was only going to be one coming down to our class. And while I did pretty well, uh, um, a guy we called Von Boost Pump, he was clearly the number one guy in the class. He was going to get, he was going to get the F-15. And so there were only two or three other guys who were FAR qualified, and we expected to get F-4s. And one guy did get an RF-4. And then these two F-111s came down. Out of the blue. They weren't, nobody said they were available. There was no hint of them. It had been years since an F-111 had ever been assigned to anybody out of pilot training. And at the time, when we went into that airplane, or when I got that assignment, up until that time, the Air Force required 1,000 hours of fighter time to be in the left seat of the F-111. And there were two ways to get that. Either you get your 1,000 hours in an F-4, F-105, F-100, something like that, whatever it was flying at the time. And then you get assigned to an F-111 unit. Or for a few guys... Uh, uh, they would get assigned to the right seat of the F-111 and be called pilot Wizzos. Now, most of the Wizzos, weapon system officers, they came out of NAV school. They were the top grads out of NAV school, and they'd go to the right seat of the 111. 10% of them were guys out of pilot training who would fill junior officer pilot-required slots in F-111 units, but not actually be 
the pilot. You'd have to look cross cockpit at the flight instruments, but it had its own, you know, throttles and a stick, and you could tell the guy in the left seat to swing the wings and get the gear down. Or if you really had to, you could reach across and get it. The cockpit wasn't that big. Um, and so, but ultimately, the Air Force could not effectively man the system with that thousand hour requirement. And so, a they didn't want to do it. Air Force, corporate Air Force didn't want to do it, but they finally said, we've got to see if we can put people out of UPT into the left seat of this airplane. Um, and at the air time, that airplane was pretty dangerous. In fact, it always was a dangerous airplane to fly and a very complicated airplane, and that's why they wanted all that time. And so there were about seven... seven of us from three different pilot training bases that went to Cannon, another seven that went to Mountain Home as the very first group of guys. So ground school, I took about two, I want to say two or three weeks. Um, fighters are not, compared to airliners, they're not really as complicated. We don't have three, you know, we only have two systems in most cases, sometimes only one. Uh, basic hydraulics, electrics, and all that stuff are pretty reasonably simple. Where things departed for the F-111, uh, it was the obvious thing, the, the variable geometry wing, which added a lot of, uh, a lot to it in terms of complication and performance. Uh, the terrain-following radar, which was unique, and uh, the flight controls. Actually, the, the F-111 pioneered four different types of systems. Variable geometry wing, first operational airplane to have that. Uh, afterburning. A fan jet engine. Before that, all afterburning engines were turbojets. Um, the uh, TFR, and what was effectively fly-by-wire flight controls. Now, not actually in the sense that, like an F-16, really has no physical connection between the stick and the flight controls. The F-111 did, but when the system was operating normally, when the flight control computers were were working normally. It, you would move the stick, so you'd move the stick aft that far. And that would tell the flight control computer that you wanted a 2G, 2Gs of load on the airplane. And so based on the airplane's sense of air mass, speed, uh, it would position the elevons call them elevons because they work both in roll and pitch, so ailerons and elevators, and then position the elevons to give what the flight control computers think is going to be 2Gs, and then reposition is required to produce 2Gs. So you're really, you're telling the flight control computer what to do with this, and then it goes out and does it. And that's essentially what a fly-by-wire system does, whereas a conventional conventional flight control system, you're telling the flight controls what you want, and then you're modifying the inputs as required to get the response out of the airplane. So, so that was uh, we're really pioneering uh, four different technologies on the airplane, and so that the flight controls were pretty complicated. TFR was complicated, very uh, demanding system to even check out. It was almost like launching a space shuttle. So the, the about three weeks in the ground school, and then it followed the basic pattern of almost pilot training. You went out and did you know, contact movers, or just kind of fly the airplane around, get used to it, uh, demonstrate some of the handling qualities of the airplane. I remember one of my early sorties, uh, 
big thing about the airplane is wing sweep. Uh, completely manual. Little trombone handle that was under the left windowsill of the airplane, and it tucked up like this. And you you reach your hand up, pull it down, and it released it from its geared tooth rack, so you could move it forward and back. And then you just did whatever, just like a trombone. You just moved it to wherever you thought it needed to be. There's a wing sweep indicator up there that would tell you one a telltale tell you where you've positioned the handle, and then the needle to show where the where the wing sweep was in relation to that. Uh, but it was completely manual. And, uh, and we positioned the wings based on kind of what you were going to do with the airplane. If, I have a, if I'm low level and I'm going 580 knots and I don't have any turns coming up and I'm just really just scooting along, well, I'm going to have the wings back at 60, 72 degrees. Uh, mostly day low level maneuvering. Uh, you'd be, we'd be doing tactical formation where we could do it's, I won't go into big details, but we could keep a formation line abreast based on the maneuvers that Lead was doing in order to provide geometry for two to be in position. Well, that requires a lot more maneuvering, so in that case, we'd probably be 35 to 54 degrees. And if a turn's coming up, you know a turn's coming up, then the wings would come forward because what we're doing, uh, the airplane does, we're managing angle of attack. And the real reason for a sweep for sweep wings is to manage drag. And as the wings get further aft, the flow, airflow hits the wing and it spills off to the side. And so in the transonic region where drag really builds up, we would have less drag, substantially less drag than an F4 going the same speed, even though the F4 is a much smaller airplane. And in fact, when the wings get aft enough that the F-111 wing is not a supersonic wing because even at supersonic speeds, the effective airflow over the wing is always subsonic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, it's really a function of trigonometry. So that's, that's why the, the drag is so controlled. It, and, and we didn't go fast because we had a lot of power. We didn't. So certainly not the, the F-111E, I think, had 18,000 pounds, normal trim, full afterburner per engine. So we're take, at takeoff, we're 36,000 pounds of thrust and training weights, it's an 80,000 pound airplane. We, we're like 0.4 to 1. So that's not a lot. We weren't getting to high speed because we had a lot of power. We got to high speed because we could control the drag and ultimately, and ultimately we wouldn't get up there very fast unless we used afterburner. But that's how we could do 480, 550 knots on the deck in cold power it was because we had a lot of it, just we, didn't have, we had very little drag one of the demonstrations was you get slow, get about 300 knots or so, get the wings back to 72, and roll the airplane upside down, and then just hold level flight. Now, having done that, roll it right side up again. Wouldn't do it. You'd take the stick all the way to one side, and the airplane would just ever, ever so slowly roll. Well, that's because with the wings back, with the wings forward of 54 degrees, 52, 54, there were spoilers on each wing that would go up to spoil lift in the downgoing wing when you're going into a turn. In addition to the elevons doing this, so whatever you see, a lot of pictures you see of 111, you'll see the tailplane is, well, that's, but when the wing's all the way aft, the spoilers are locked out because they're not doing any good, 
the only thing you have is roll surfaces that are very close to the center of the airplane. So they don't have a lot of leverage. And on top of that, the airplane, since it's a high angle of attack and upside down, you have your big old engines back here, and you're trying to roll those engines, trying to lift them as you're turning the airplane. The airplane just didn't have enough roll authority available under the circumstances to do it. You really had to, you had to get in some rudder, uh, relax, get off the G. That's the other thing you have to do. Just unload the airplane and start go down, and then it would come out. Uh, and where this comes into play is if you got slow and the airplane, because it was so heavily wing-loaded, that it, you could be doing 600 knots, and you start maneuvering the airplane, and you, the airplane would lose 50 knots a second. So, two seconds, you're down to 500. Four seconds, you're down to 400. Six seconds, you're down to 300 knots of doing this. And if you're not paying attention, what will happen is you'll be at, on the SAM range at Red Flag, and you're getting lit up, so you start maneuvering to, to break the SAM locks, and you're slowing down and you don't notice it, and you come up to a, a mountain, and as we, our ridge crossing daytime was typically you'd pull to clear the ridge, and as you're approaching the top of the ridge, you'd roll upside down to use the positive G to keep your gap over the ridge as small as possible because if you ballooned over the ridge, we call that the Ivan thanks you very much maneuver, because back at the day, the only missiles that were effective against us were IR missiles. Radar missiles couldn't pick us out of the, in fact, radars couldn't pick us out of ground clutter at all. That was before pulse Doppler radars. Um, so to avoid the Ivan thanks you very much maneuver, you roll upside down and pull, and then roll out. You see where I'm going with this? That crew never came out of it. They upside down right into the ground because they forgot that this airplane will kill you. You know, you do it during the day, and it's all well and good. You'd see it, it was, and it would take you down to 200 feet, and uh, it would, had rides between 200 feet and 1,000 feet, and ride qualities that would be soft, medium, and hard. The hard ride would take you to an obstacle up until the point where it required four G's of pull to clear it and zero G's would, to stop the climb. It would never command less, uh, you know, more downward than zero G's. Uh, so it was pretty aggressive. And what a lot of guys would do is they'd leave it on the medium ride to get a more gradual pull because what you didn't want to balloon over a ridge if you didn't want to. So it'd be in medium approach the top of the climb, you'd go to hard, get the zero G push over, and then back down the other side. So during the day, it was okay. They can hand fly it a lot lower than, than the airplane can. But at night, that was a different deal. And I never got used to it. The very, one of the first missions I had, then uh, a cannon in New Mexico, we're scooting along, I think it was at 400 feet, and I think, oh my God, we're, there's an airplane out there, we're going to hit it. Oh, and an airplane. It was a car on a road, on a ridgeline, above us. That sort of thing you don't get used to. And then, then the other thing about the TF is, uh, now talking back to the adaptive flight controls, there was a low-level route we had where it, it's kind of up on high terrain, goes over a mountain, and then comes down very, very steep down, I don't know, four or 5,000, 6,000 feet until it reaches a valley floor going out the other side. So we'd lose some airspeed going up, uh, and then come over the top maybe at 460 knots 
and then the airplane will start picking up airspeed going down. So now the airplane is going from slower to faster and from air that's thinner to thicker. And the flight control gains couldn't keep up with it. They were analog flight control computers. They couldn't keep up with it. So they're putting in stab inputs to control pitch, and they're always too much because they're controlling for an air mass that's five, six seconds ago, and it's not the one they're in now or the speed they're going now. So, it's, so it'd be, oh, it's too much this way, too much the other way, too much this way. And you would be getting bang, bang, bang. I mean, it was seriously 4Gs, 0Gs, 4Gs, 0Gs, just getting hammered. Well, it was kind of uncomfortable. You get used to it after a while, but you go, okay, I, I know. Here's the part of this ride where, we, where it gets exciting. Um, well, anyway, so I'm back to what the training was. The, the day low level, then the night low level, range work uh, to practice weapons delivery, area refueling. Um, and that took about four months, all done, until we're fully ready to go. Did you have a... Uh, partake in DACT with the F-111? Uh, we did. Well, in Red Flag, we did. Um, uh, I flew in a special program. I think I can probably talk about it. I was in fighter weapons school. We flew against some aircraft that perhaps might have been maybe Soviet types. Mm-hmm. wonder what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, maybe. I mean, for legal reasons, they weren't, but yeah. they might have been. You screwed up your eyes a lot. Um, and the, the lesson we learned was the, the, really the only game in town in the F-111 was if somebody jumped, what they teach in fighter weapons or uh, fighter lead-in training, you know, for us hair on fire lieutenants that were coming out of that. So your red flag and F-15 comes at you, and what you want to do is turn and put some angles on them, <laughs> as if. Because... An F-15 could pull nine Gs, and, and if we're pulling any more than about three or four, we're slowing down in a big hurry. So all you're doing is reducing the amount of time it's going to take for him to get in a solution to kill you. That's all. So you can outrun them, maybe? So the only thing we could do was, oh, the actual thing you don't weren't taught to do in basic fighter maneuvering, you see a guy coming in on you want to put his, your tail on it. Because now if you've picked him up, say, 10,000, 12,000 feet out, and you're going co-speed, which, it, and some of the red flank ranges were subsonic. That means you're super, you can't go faster than Mach. He can't either. So he's not catching up to you. Well, if you, if you stagnate him more than about eight or 9,000 feet out, no missile he has has enough energy to catch you. It, it can't cover that distance and still have propellant left when it shows up if it doesn't have any overtake. If the V sub C, as they call it, is zero. Well, and then you go to the supersonic regime. See ya. Yeah, yeah, just light them up, gone. Because we do, uh, I think the fastest I saw on the deck at Red Flag was 930 knots. Oh, my neck. Uh, I got to Red Flag as lieutenant. And one of the missions we had, had was the Navy. Navy was there, A6s, A7s, A4s. Yeah. So they had a Navy guy running the mission. And his plan... You're attacking an airfield complex. If you see if I can think backwards here. Okay, so this is southwest part of the Nellis Ranges, and you have a place called Dreamland, which is Area 51. We couldn't go on that, so it would be coming in from here, from the east. Nellis is down here. And his plan was we'd kind of work our way through just north of Dreamland because we wouldn't have to worry about enemy air coming from that side. 
and then we'd go to attack this airfield complex. Now, the role, the, often the mission for the F-111 in this scenario was suppression of enemy air defenses. We were to go in and knock out the AAA, the SAM sites, and all that stuff, so that the other ground, the, the more vulnerable ground attack airplanes, the slower ones, uh, had less to deal with. So his idea was, well, first we're going to compress TOTs, because we want to get as many airplanes through in as short as possible time. And because you guys, the 111s, you're going to do suppression of air, air defense. It doesn't make do any good to show up last. You've got to show up first. No, by the way, you're going to fly the same route we are. Well, typically, if in that scenario, we'd enter from further north and kind of come around, because we're going so much faster than anybody else that, well, that's what this Navy guy wanted, and that's what he got. So we're, we're going through um, just north of Dreamland. It was about time. We left last to get there first, all in basically the same black line. So it's just about time we're getting north of Dreamland. We start catching up these airplanes, and they are like they're hung from the sky by strings. The, uh, flight, the flight lead on that mission, uh, he, the leader of the two of us, he was flying his last red flag. He's retiring as a base uh, vice wing commander, and he told me, during the flight brief, that when we hit the supersonic line, I'm going to go full afterburner, and whether you can hang on or not, I really don't care. Okay, I'm just going full AB, and I'm going as fast as I can for as long as I can. Got it? Yes, sir. Got it. So sure enough, we hit the we hit the supersonic line. Ready now? Boom! And so here we go, and way up in front, and now the airplanes are really going as we're as we're passing them by. And then up front, there's a couple of EA-6s that are laying down some trons to kind of protect the package behind them. And they get jumped by some red air, and they go into, and they're at about 500 feet. They go into a defensive turn like this, because what they're trying to do is to, no, I say, uh, yeah, they will go to the right. The defensive turn to the right. And what they're trying to do is to get, if the enemy air guy, he, he's got to worry about defending against the other dude. Right, so now they're, this is kind of a defensive tack formation that you'd go to uh, make the other guys break off. Um, so he goes into a turn. So he's about 90 degrees to me. Now his speed relative to me is, he's a relative to ground. You know, I'm going this way. He's not going this way at all. He's going that way. And I look at him and I go, well, geez, I'm going to be the guy on the right. He's at 500 feet. He's not going down. I, I don't know where he's going to, I don't know what he's going to do with his altitude, but I know he's not going down. That, that's not on. So I'm going to go underneath him. Second lieutenant, what can you say? So I went underneath him as he's like this. And I'm down at now about 50 or 100 feet, going like a bullet. Because we were at that mission, we were carrying Mark 84s, so that was slick weapons. We could carry those supersonic. So now we're 1.1, 1.2, just hauling ass. Um, and we'll go right under him. And off, and we do the rest of our mission, come back. Um, so that's where we did DACT, was primarily red flag. We learned that, and that's really, at that time, it was kind of a dumb thing for us to be doing, because our primary mission was night. Night, bad weather. Nobody's doing DACT then. Um, and I, I, I will probably talk a few times about some of the institutional negligence of the Air Force. They did one night red flag ever, as far as I know, at least during that era. And that happened to be when I was there. So we did a night red flag, and it failed to glorify air to air. 
And the Air Force, at the time, was all about glorifying air-to-air. Well, if it's not glorifying air-to-air, we're just not going to do it, right? We don't, we don't care about the rest of the stuff. We don't care, really care about the 111. Uh, what we care about is air-to-air. Well, guess what? We have a whole weapon system designed for an environment that the Air Force decided not to realistically train in, which had payback later on, or could have easily. I mean, there was some luck that kept it, but but, uh, we were training for an environment which we were certainly, almost certainly never going to get employed in. So, Jack, how long did you spend that kind of... I was only there about a year and a half. Uh, Right about the 14-month point, I was taking some tests for my check ride, and uh, examiner came and said, hey, the personnel people want to talk to you. Like, I'm a lieutenant. What do they want to talk to me? I meant, seriously, I'm a lieutenant. Who wants to talk to me? Well, there was a personnel center saying, hey, would you like to go to Upper Hayford, England? I wasn't married at the time, so I only had, the only person I had to ask was myself, and I looked around me at Clovis, oh so far from heaven, oh so close to Texas, New Mexico, if you know what I'm saying, and gave that about a nanosecond's worth of thought and said, yep, I'm your man. So I showed up in February to uh, uh, Clovis, New Mexico, I mean to Upper Hayford in February of 1981, uh, back when there were only three TV stations, uh, no internet, telephone to the States was prohibitively expensive. You'd oh, send me, yeah, well, it, it was, I mean, you could call, but it was going to be expensive. Uh, or you could arrange, it arranges that they'd give us a line, but you have to make like reservations for that. Uh, letters took two weeks round trip. Really, that life existed. I know, I know you're saying, no way. Why did people even want to live? But somehow we did. And so I showed up there as a lieutenant, but I was already mission ready. Up until then, the lieutenants they got were fresh out of the replacement training unit at, upper, at Mountain Home. So they really didn't know what to do with me at first. It's like, I'm either fish nor fowl. Uh, came right into an exercise, and then they, they put me in the mission planning cell at first, and they go, well, wait a minute, what are we putting a guy in a mission planning cell? He's already been to Red Flag. Heck, we haven't been to Red Flag. Mm-hmm. So I pretty quickly went to uh, flying, and uh, here it's worth talking about a difference between flying in the U.S. and flying in Europe. Uh, in the U.S., it was very canned. You would get a low-level route, you grab a boat. You're assigned to this route. It already pre-planned. You're going to fly the route. This is your range time. If there was a tanker available, you're going to this tanker at this track at this time, and then you will come back and do some bounces here or maybe Boise or uh, Twin Falls. We, you know, we could go there. Civilian airports. We could use them. It's very canned. Get to uh, Europe. And what it boiled down to was, we want the airplane back in two and a half hours, in a reusable condition, and no phone calls. Now, we have some rules here. You, certain low-fly areas you can use. You can only go down to 250 feet in some of these areas. Uh, you know, so there were some low-fly rules. You can't go blundering through civil airspace without talking to the right control. So there were some rules. But basically, day-to-day, you showed up. Spread out maps, picked a target, did the planning for the mission, whatever, you know, whether you had two or four airplanes or it was just yourself. So you'd do the mission planning all from scratch. And then 
you'd go out there, and one time out of three, the weather would suck because England, or even more so Scotland, which that's where we did most, most of our uh, flying. And, well, if the weather sucked where you wanted to go, well, I'll just go find a range somewhere. And so we basically, every mission, we would make up from scratch, and then we'd be flexible. So you'd never really know where the heck you, know, you might end up. And if we heard there was a tanker, it was an opportune tanker in, in, in uh, our, our refueling track eight, we'd pop up and say, hey, we got a flight of two. You have, you know, can you take... And we just sometimes do dry hookups or take a couple thousand pounds. We do opportune tanking to keep our squares filled there. So it was much more environment there, which was far better than in the States. We probably flew between about 25 and 35 hours a month, which doesn't sound like very much. But in an airplane like the 111, the, each day you flew was really demanding. If our, you're flying, flying a four-ship, and we didn't have any computers to help us at this point. You are planning a mission for four airplanes, which means you're picking a target or a specific target you're going to attack from four different directions with compressed TOTs and escape maneuvers for weapons effects. Um, you're ripping maps, putting the black lines on and the headings and the distances, and somebody's cranking the flight plan. So you, because we had inertial navs, inertial navigation systems in the airplane, but they're analog. That's something I forgot to mention. The F-111E used ancient, well-worn, hand-tooled flying techniques because the avionics were that primitive. Wow. We had an analog INS that was just as happy to put on its tennis shoes and run away to Philadelphia as anything. It wasn't like the F-111F, which had digital and paved tack and all that stuff. It was an entirely different operation. So we're doing all this stuff by hand. Well, you, we had to show up five hours before takeoff to get all that stuff done in order to get the briefing done. And you get the flight briefing is going to take a while because it's a complicated mission. To get out to the airplane and then fly a two-and-a-half-hour mission and get back and debrief it, now you're talking a 10-hour day. One flight, 10-hour day. Two-and-a-half-hour flight, 10 hours gone. And we all had our uh, separate ground duties, you know, if... Uh, Somebody might be a scheduler or in the weapons and tactics division or uh, the uh, radar, uh, radar film division, you know, whatever. You, all, you had additional dues you had to do. And so, and we had a 12-hour day. We were not allowed, you, were, you had to get out of the squadron no later than 12 hours before your showtime on a flying day. So really, we can only fly about, mostly about three times a week. If you're an instructor pilot, uh, you'd be on, as I was, I became an instructor pilot pretty early, two-ship flight lead right at the first opportunity, four-ship flight lead at the first opportunity, and then instructor pilot. I was instructor pilot before I pinned on captain, which was pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, and so the instructor pilots and four-ship flight leads, they'd be, trying to, they'd be trying to get on the schedule all the time because you just didn't have very many. And so there, I think there was one month where I flew 50 hours and it almost killed me. I mean, it was, it was seriously exhausting. So how long did you spend your first two in the UK? I was in, I was in the UK for four years, from uh, March of 81 to March of 84. Um, and then I, uh, I got out of the Air Force, actually, for a couple of years. I went to work with a friend of mine who started his own electrical engineering company. And that was all well and good, did some interesting stuff there. Uh, but ultimately, I missed not only the flying but the people. I really missed, I really missed the people that in the Air Force. I think that's a universal. 
Yeah, so in, in, in 1984, there was a big hiring wave going on in the airlines, and there's one guy swimming against that current, against that wave, trying to get back in. So I'm that one guy, you know, recruiters going, I'm walking recruiting offices, hey, I'm a, you know, I was an Air Force pilot a couple, two, until a couple years ago, how do I get back in? And you guys look at me like, seriously? <laughs> I had to get a recommend, letter of recommendation from a colonel I knew well, and they said, okay, you're, you're back in. So I went up, I, so after uh, well, less than two and a half years, I was back up in Mountain Home, uh, Idaho, uh, and they put me right back into the left seat of the F-111 as an instructor pilot. I had to go through recurrency training, but I started off as an IP uh, teaching new guys in the 111. And I did that for about uh, a year, like 80, so I got there in 86. And uh, early 87, they sent me to fighter, they asked me if I wanted to go. You want to go to fighter weapon school? And fighter weapon school happened to be at Mountain Home. <clears throat> Mostly it's at Nellis, but for our airplane, because we had so much range, we could have the school at Mountain Home and do all the stuff we had to do in the ranges down at Red Flag and come back. We didn't, I don't think we needed a tanker for that. Uh, so I did fighter weapons school, and then I had to be on base a minimum of two years. So in uh, so two years, so June of 1988, uh, I headed back to Upper Hayford. And I was there from June of 88 to 92 and went back to the same squadron I'd been in before, the 79th Fighter Squadron, which, uh, for reasons I can't uh, begin to fathom, has more camaraderie. We, none of the other squadrons I've been in to does regular reunions. Guys don't really keep in touch with each other. But that squadron had just a huge amount of camaraderie both times I was there. So it was really a lot of fun. So I came back to uh, uh, Upper Hayford the second time. Uh, and it was pretty much just an extension of the first. I, you know, I was doing higher level jobs because I was more senior in rank than I'd been before. But basically, four-shift flight lead, flight instructor, and all that stuff. Uh, what made that tour... That time, most memorable, is uh, Saddam. We, one of the things we, uh, we had issues with, with, almost all the ranges in England were overwater ranges, and they were very artificial. But to uh, overcome that artificiality, we would, we would deploy um, to Injerlik, Turkey, once a year for three weeks. And uh, Konya range is an overland range. So we would do our low levels to Konya and then operate over, low, low level, uh, over an overland range and get some re more realistic training. And it was then, one of our deployments there, we just happened to be at Injerlik when Saddam invaded Kuwait. Just for there. We were the only forces in the region. Just there by accident. The next day as seen on CNN, was video of our airplanes taxiing for takeoff, implying but not quite saying we had deployed overnight from, without actually saying it. But that was really the very first uh, video that came out of, of any American forces over there were our F-111s taxiing at, at Inzerland. And they kept us there for our normal rotation. And then the next squadron, 77th, I think, came in and replaced us. And then I was an instructor didn't have a lot of us around, so they kept. I stayed another two weeks with the 77th, and then I came back home. Um, and then, I think the 55th, and then another squadron rotated in, and they had to decide what to do. Now we're getting into October-ish, I think. And I don't know why they made this decision. 
or why they picked us, but they said, 79th, deploy to Inzerlich, and you are there until it's over. However it ends, you're there until it's done. Perhaps the reason they picked us is that for reasons I, I don't know why, the 79th had four fighter weapons school grads. The other squadrons only had one each. And also, and again, I have no idea if this would have any bearing in or not, I was the highest time pilot on the base at the time. So I had more hours in the airplane. I think perhaps we had a higher experience level than the other two squadrons. Or the wing commander just did that patch, these guys. I have no idea. So we went down, and our goal, we got down in October. And so what we had to do at that point is work up to presumed combat operations. And, and so we started out by pairing up crews. So we flew exclusively with another guy. The guy I flew with was uh, Clyde, called him John Frame. Uh, probably the best, one of the best wizards in the squadron, really, really good. So they paired me up with Clyde, and we, you know, we all got paired up. So we all flew exclusively together because the night low-level regime, you really got to kind of be synced up with the other guy if you're doing it for real. My first night on pre-flighting the airplane, and remember I mentioned earlier about the TFRs being very complex to check. And if you got one switch wrong or a sequence a little bit wrong, it just wouldn't work. And then you go back and redo it because now you don't know if it's not working because it's, it's you or it's busted. Well, of course, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, I was, I was pretty much pinging like a well-hit three-wood in a tile shower. And so that it failed three times in a row. And finally, I, I call maintenance and I say, I think this thing's gooned up. And I think I knew what it was. We had... Inertial reference was the primary reference. That's the inertial platform. Then we had an aux reference gyro that lived over here just behind, just in front of the intake on that side, of the left side of the airplane. And if it went bad, then it, there was no check against the inertial platform to see whether the vector it was getting was good. And so sure enough, it was the aux flight. Well, there was an amplifier, then a gyro. There's a panel with like 800 must be 800 fasteners on it. So they got their speed wrenches on it, getting these fasteners off as fast as they can. Um, I'm sitting there with one engine running. They get the panel off. They do the easy thing. You pull the amplifier out, put it back in. I do the checks again. Fails checks. Okay. Amplifier comes out. Ox gyro comes out. Ox gyro goes in. Amplifier goes in. It works. Yay. But time, doing what it does, had gone right on, and we were reaching our no later than takeoff time. And that was a time that we're... We could take off, go as fast as we could without burning too much fuel, and catch up to the rest of the package in such a way to make our TOT. So I'm leading, I was leading a four ship, uh, leading a flight of four into this target area. So I had to be the first, my TOT was the first one. Now we're running up close against the no later than takeoff time. And it got so close that I had the armorers pull all of our weapon, ordinarily there's a last chance out right next to the runway. So even as the maintenance guys are, are uh, buttoning the thing up, had the armorers pull all the safing pins off the weapons. 
And then as soon as that panel was done, I ran up the right engine, which was still running, pulled the chocks, and then did a bunch of things you don't ever do. I started the other engine on the roll. You never single engine taxi F-111. Started the other engine on the roll. And the only way we're about, it was a pretty long taxi from where the airplanes were parked up to the runway. Our taxi speed limit was 30 knots. I was doing 75. Because I had to get down that drag to get to the runway to get off. Because I'm, I'm the last plane. Everybody else is, you know, thundering herd way over the horizon. And told Tower, just, you know, give us a green light. Tell us because we're not stopping. We can't stop. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. So slam on the brakes, make the corner, make the corner, green light, but off we go. So one of the first things that happens is we almost hit a tanker. Remember, I said things were kind of chaotic and screwed up. We're, we're not going to like seven or 8,000 feet, and these tanker goes right over our head. Like, where the hell did that come? He's so close, we could see the, the, the uh, director, position director lights underneath it. And then, so now we're climbing out, starting to catch up, and I notice that the standby attitude indicator is starting to tilt a little bit. And that could be because the standby attitude indicator is drifting or that oxalite reference gyro, which gives the attitude for that thing, is going to hell again. Well, there's a way to check that. And that is if you, if you uh, move the switch from uh, IRS to aux, if it nails that gyro back up again, then you know it's problem with that stupid thing. You can just recage it. Uh, otherwise, if it's not, it's your aux reference is going bad again. We just have to turn around and go home. Okay, a little bit of backstory here. The 111 had a chaff and flare switch that was in front of the throttles, and it was kind of a long, it wasn't a very big re- switch about that big, and it was way down in front of the throttles. So it was kind of a reach. Um, Forward for chaff, back for um, f- back for flare, uh, back for chaff, forward for chaff and flare. And some maintenance guy noticed because we were complaining about this. Some maintenance guy noticed, hey, we have these tubes that we take oil out of the engines after each flight to do an a- analyze them, see if the if see if the oil if there's anything in the oil that shouldn't be there. Well, that tube fit perfect interference fit right over the switch. So he looks at us. Well, geez, if I cut that tube and slip that thing over the switch, then they can reach it. Brilliant idea. Okay, we're talking guys here. And if two inches is good, three inches is better, and six inches and you're on your way. So pretty soon, these panels started spouting. These plastic tubes were like this freaking long. Well, we, uh, so I'm reaching forward to move this switch, and unbeknownst to me, because I'm wearing a glove, I've actually caught this plastic tube, which doesn't have any friction against my glove, and because the lever arm is so long, it doesn't have any force, and as I'm reaching for it, I push that switch forward, and we punch off a flare. Flares that we were not allowed to use in training because they might burn up the airplane or some stuff. We weren't allowed to use them. We had never trained with them. I'd never dropped a flare in my life. I had no idea what it would look like or feel like. Well, a flare comes out of a channel right here. This little, you can see the little fared shape right there. There's a channel just to the right of the each engine, right, right to the right engine, left, left engine. 
and it would punch a flare out, and the goal of the flare is to be a shiny thing for a heat-seeking missile. And so the missile sees shiny thing and follows it. Well, in order to be shinier than the engine, it has to, it has to light up right here, right next to the engine, to swamp the IR sensor field of view, and then pull away. Well, it has to be hot, big thermal shock. It's got to be close to the airplane. Well, what happens when you punch one of these things off is the airplane gets a right good thump because it's happening right under the horizontal stabilizer and that shockwave hits it and really jolts the airplane. And the other thing that happens is it lights the sky up like there's no freaking tomorrow. Right? It is artificial sunrise. Well, the 111, on occasion, would shed turbine blades. And the turbine blades are right about here and there's an aft saddle tank that is between the engines and invariably if it shed turbine blades, those turbine blades would go through the saddle tank and so the first thing we get is a firelight, which is agent discharge, uh, agent discharge switch arm, fire push button to press. That was a bold face for an engine fire. And it was really a three-step bold face because it's agent discharge switch arm, fire push button to press, 1,001, 1,000, ejection handle, squeeze and pull. Because the airplane was turning into a Roman candle. Never survived that, ever. Well... One of them survived long enough to make it to a runway and then burn up on the runway. Um, so, sky lights up, big thump in the airplane, and my right singer and I are like, we're, okay, which engine is it? Which engine just blew up? And we're sitting there, like five minutes. Just dumb. And if, if I, I don't think we'd ever figured it out, except my Wizzo, we'd still be thinking about it, except the Wizzo noticed that our flare, somehow he noticed, Clyde noticed that the flare counter went down one. So, oh, we just punched off a flare. Because of that thing they put on there, because if two inches is good, six inches is way better. So that was, okay, now we're, we haven't even caught up with the guys yet. Now we think we've blown up an engine. And then we come up to a line of thunderstorms, and we start getting St. Elmo's fire like I've never seen before. So these about the size of tennis balls would form on the pitot tube and slowly roll up the ray dome, up the nose of the airplane, right up to the gun sight on my side, the wizard didn't have one, and would reach where the corner of the gun side got really close to the glass and roll really slowly up and it would go right through the glass into that frame. Gone. As soon as it did that, another one rolled up. Meanwhile, there was lightning. I mean, you could hear the Sturm and Drang, the, the just uh, Wagner going on. So lots of atmospherics as we're showing up. And then uh, a gentleman who shall remain nameless, Anybody of my friends who were there will know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, David Letterman had a character at the time, Ken. So we called this guy Ken. Had already headed south for their target, for the western targets. AWACS is calling picture clear, meaning no enemy air in the, in the vicinity. And then the weasels had uh, code word the, the Magnum. They said Magnum, they were launching one of their harms. And those harms were big frickin' rockets. They would go up to 80,000 feet to get loiter time because what would happen oftentimes is an enemy would blink their radars and turn them on, try to get a target, and then go shut down before they could get hit. Well, the harms were smarter than that. They'd, they'd launch, and if the target blinked, they'd go up. It takes a lot of motor to do that. It would light up the sky to, uh, to make this happen. And so they'd always call Magnum to let anybody in the local area know that 
is getting ready to happen. So AOX is calling picture clear, F4G calls Magnum, launches a rocket, and Ken decides he's being jumped by a MIG, even though there aren't any. And Magnum probably means that that missile that just came off rail isn't going anywhere near him. So he's up at 20,000 feet, goes into a hard turn, 90-degree bank turn. Uh, he's a heavy airplane, heavy 111, at 20,000 feet, carrying eight CBU canisters, high drag configuration for us, and starts coming out of the sky like a grease safe. So he goes to full afterburner. So he's going all the way forward on here and catches that tube sticking up, punches off a flare, which he's never seen before, thinks he's been hit, calls mayday, 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 and punches his stores off. Still over Turkey. So he, so he hits the emergency stores jettison button. Now, there were very strict limits for that because the airflow around the wings, they had they found if you weren't really wings level, 250 knots, wings all the way forward, that what would happen is those stores would back up and they, the airflow would cause them to do this and they'd, they'd try to take off the stabilizer. They had it happen with fuel tanks. The stabilizers just sheared the fuel tanks in half, have them on film. So very strict limits for using the emergency storage jettison. The only reason we can figure out that the airplane wasn't destroyed was that he was pulling hard enough that the, the racks actually went between the wing up, between the wing and the horizontal stabilizer. So now he's coming out of the sky like this death spiral coming out of the sky. He's bombed turkey, our friends, and the Wizzo had to recover the airplane. So... He's the first guy home. Wow. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to wrap this up here pretty soon. So we, we went to the eastern end of the border with, between Syria and Iran. There's Iran, Iraq, and Syria all meet at a point uh, on, the, on the east of the eastern border between Syria and Iraq. Or Iran, Syria and Turkey. Iraq and Turkey. There we go. Um, so we start heading south there. And now we're down, going down, because we would step down to stay below the radars. Now we're in low level. And uh, we did our first week low level. By far, the most stressful part of flying in combat was doing actual, no-joke low level in a route you'd never seen before during the day, rugged terrain. I mean, it was, it was operating the thing, and that was far more stressful than being shot at. It was, I, I wouldn't have thought that ahead because I, I'm flying, flying the airplane. I'd almost, you know, 3,000 hours in the airplane at this point. I've flown TFR before. No, well, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going down this valley. Clyde's doing the left, and right down the center of this valley, which we can't, I can't see. I really can't see what's going on because he has a hood that he's looking in because it would drown the cockpit in light. But he, so he has a hood he's looking in, so I can't see what he's showing me. I can't. Uh, really, inter- I just taken his word for it. I have no idea what's around us. Can't see. And suddenly, this light just beam just swings around, comes right at us. And I thought, that we're dead. We've just been shot. Oh no, we're not dead. That's just a truck on the road above us. It came around a hairpin corner around the ridge. That's where you see the light coming around. And so this guy's just minding his own freaking business driving this truck on this night road, 
And we went by him about 100 feet below and about 50 or 60 feet to the right at about 600 knots. I, I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like because you don't hear it coming, the airplane going that fast, 111 going that fast. You had no idea. You couldn't hear it, you know, un, until it was too late. And suddenly, I mean, it just all hell must have broken loose. So we got through, delivered our weapons, and on the way out, we didn't know because intel people really didn't often give us useful information that our black line was planned right over one of Saddam's nuclear research facilities. Had no idea. There were a lot of guns there. But every bullet that comes out of the barrel is red hot. And so uh, a Quad 23, it's, you know, they're maybe shooting a tracer every eight. Something like that is what they have loaded. Well, you're seeing the seven bullets in between that eight, you know, tracer, red, 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 red tracer, red. And the S60s, the bigger, uh, the higher caliber weapons, they didn't do tracers at all, but it's a big shell. And you can see, so you can see a lot more stuff than, um, than the camera could. And there was really a lot of stuff on this place that we've picked to egress on. Um, we couldn't go as fast as we wanted to because clear desert air. You go more than min AB, you're just like this giant Roman candle behind you. I think one of the pictures you put on shows that how long that burner flame is even during the day. Uh, and so that's not, that doesn't work for us at night. So we could go min AB, and min AB would take us, they tuned them up to uh, uh, combat specs for the engines. Not so much engine life, more power, trade off there. Uh, we got about 660 knots in min AB. So we push up min AB, all of the whole burner plume is contained inside the engine there. And it gets 660 and then pull it back to mill power and slowly roll back to 600. So we 660, 600 in there. And there's this giant curtain of AAA. So the only thing for it, because they all could only depress the gun so far, and what they did was they tried to interleave the fire. Well, they, if they depressed too far, they'd just shoot each other. So the guns are about like this. And you picked a dark spot between guns, set it down to 200 feet, and went, I, I mean, I, not 300 feet away, I can still see in my mind, Four guys working the ZSU-23 because I can see them from all the mm. muzzle flashes mm. as we go by. Of course, they're, they're, it's all over us. So it was very interesting. Visually, it really was not much of a threat because mm. they just couldn't depress the guns to get down where we were. Mm. And we go home. I swear I'm going to wrap this up soon. Now we have this giant wall of airplanes coming back to Enderlich. And everybody's doing their check ride best radio calls. And oh my God, it just swamped. Mm -hmm. You can't be reading back clearances. You really can't. Not when you have 60 airplanes coming back at once. So the radio, I think the RAPCON controllers, just, they just dove under their desks. Really. Because it, yeah. it was just... Fortunately, the weather was good. I mean, you might have put some people in the med mm -hmm. if the weather wasn't. Because I don't see... Our, so I just put myself uh, south of the field and looked for a gap. And my, my thinking is I'll just keep going out until I see a gap and I'll turn it and put myself on final. There's no other way to do it. And I see a gap, and I, it's pretty close to the runway. I make a dive for it, dive for the gap, roll out on final, maybe five, six miles out on final in the ILS. And Tyra says, hey, you, you've got a KC-135 at two miles. You have visual. Like, no, nothing out there. Well, there was. KC-135 got to turn his lights on. 
So what I thought was a gap was really a tanker. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, now what do you do? Well, one thing you can do is you can break out, go all the way out to the end of the conga line, or think, well, <clears throat> that gap wasn't real small. I know what I'll do. I'm like down about 1,000 feet. I'll just go, go to afterburner, six degrees of bank, just do a six-degree bank turn on short final. Mm -hmm. That'll give me enough room mm -hmm. to make the – and that was, that was my first combat mission. Very eventful. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, just moving on a bit. So, what happened uh, to you in your career after Desert Storm? Uh, well, the, uh, the war ended, and they moved us out, uh, I think, about two weeks later. I went back to Hayford, and um, uh, the 55th Flying Squadron did not have, Fighter Squadron did not have, didn't have a FWIC guy, didn't have enough IPs. And much to my regret, uh, they pulled me out of the 79th and put me in the 55th. I mean, 50th is a great squad and great guys, but really my home was the 79th. Mm -hmm. uh, so I spent the last, I don't know, six months at Upper Hayford uh, in the 55th. And by that time, I'm, I'm a, kind of a senior major, and it's time for me to do a staff tour. So uh, I went to intermediate service school for a year and then did three years at the Pentagon which was very interesting, learned a lot there, did a lot of stuff, went some places I wouldn't have gone otherwise. Uh, at the end of my career, when a, a possibility would have been to go back to the Pentagon, I, I'd have opened all my veins. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I can't explain to you how, but the thought of going back there just filled me with dread, mm -hmm. even though I had a great three years there. So I did three years of Pentagon, of which we'll talk no more. At this point, I decided I'd had every bit as much of, seen every bit as much being a colonel or a general as I ever wanted to see. And I'd never been promoted early, so I wasn't really, I would have probably made, I made 06 for sure, full colonel, but never general. So I'm thinking, okay, what I really want to do is go back to flying. Uh, this was after the end of the Cold War, so we're drawn down. I'm not going to go back to an operational squadron. I would have loved to have flown the F-15E. Really would have loved to do that. I found that uh, Del, uh, Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas, not a place people wanted to go. And the personnel people were suffering losses because they'd tell a guy who's like a mid-level captain, okay, your, your next tour is going to be an alpha tour. For you, it's going to be an, an instructor pilot, pilot training, and you're going to Del Rio. And they'd go, no, I'm not. I'm going bye-bye. Well, there were some of us, they call gradebeards, who were perfectly happy to do a captain's job. And I found out that they would be willing to take me, to, because I was a had been a fighter pilot, so I could go fly 38s in the new specialized undergraduate pilot training, which was now very much tactically focused, because they had the T-1 uh, business jet kind of thing to do the uh, training for the guys who were going to big airplanes. The reason they wanted me there was because they needed, they had no fighter pilots in the squadron. And so they were missing a big... There's a big gap there in background and expertise to make sure the training was conducted in such a way that we're preparing people, selecting the right people, and preparing people to go to the T-38. Then I get another call from the wing commander. Been on base now about 13, 14 months, and he says, I would like you to go to NAS Whiting Field and be a squadron commander there. And I'm looking at the phone like it's going to... It's suddenly gone schizo. It's like, sir, NAS Naval Air Station, what am I missing here? There's a big gap between where I am and where you want me to go that I just don't get. Well, I didn't know, because I'm in my own little world, that 
uh, we were actually conducting joint training with the Navy. That we had a squadron, Advanced Air Force Base in Oklahoma, where every other squadron commander was from the other service, Navy, and half these students and half the instructors were from the Navy. There's a corresponding squadron down at down at uh, Whiting Field, which is near Pensacola. I had no idea. So I go there uh, to fly the T-34, which is a turboprop, 450-shaft horsepower turboprop hung off the front of a Beechcraft Bonanza airframe that's been beefed up to do 5.5, 6G front and back seating. But basically, it's a Bonanza airframe with 450 horsepower in the front of it. Kind of a fun little airplane to fly. And so I ended my career, my Air Force career, as a Navy squadron commander. Uh, Ultimately, I got a job offer from Northwest Airlines, late Northwest Airlines. So I left the Air Force in uh, the Navy in March of change of command ceremony in March of 2000 on a Friday. And on Monday, I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the Northwest Training Center, uh, starting training to be in the right seat of the DC-9. So I did the DC-9, A320 at Northwest, then that horrible event happened, 9-11. And things started rolling downhill, and then uh, so about in October of 2002, I was ushered off the property, got furloughed. Furloughed for about two and a half years. Uh, I worked uh, as a software engineer at Ford for a while during that time. So. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't too traumatic an event for us. I, I did have to sling satellite dishes at the sides of houses in the Michigan winter for about four months, making about nine pounds an hour. But you got to do what you got to do. Kids want to eat. And about four months later, uh, I managed to land a position at Ford, and then things were pretty pretty good after that. I got recalled in March of '05. I kept my job at Ford while I flew. My wife didn't like that, but thought I was a genius. Ultimately, when seven months later, I got furloughed again. Mm. Furloughed the second time in uh, the end of October of 2005 and decided I, would, I was done. That this, I'm going to just go off. I've got a database background. I can, I can get a good job doing that. I'm so sick and tired of this airline nonsense. Uh, interviewed at FedEx in February of 2006, hired in June, went straight to the right seat of the MD-11 up in Anchorage, uh, flew out of Anchorage uh, for the next eight, uh, nearly eight and a half years, short break to the right seat of the 727, uh, involved in there, and then a couple of years, two and a half years ago, uh, bid to come over to be uh, based in Germany. We have a, we fly 757s out of Paris. Pilot bases in Cologne, and uh, so I've been flying the 757 out of uh, Europe since then, since April of 2015. And I upgraded to the left seat, so I'm captain of the 75 now. And uh, so we're uh, we're over here for five years, and we're loving it, having a great time. Do you have any hobbies? I am a gearhead. Like I mentioned earlier, if I could be my hero when I was a kid was Jim Clark. I don't know if you know who he is. One of the most famous racing drivers ever. I love working on cars, so I have a lot of tools. I do all the maintenance on our cars, and that's really pretty much my only hobby. Mm-hmm. So, do you have a favorite aircraft you've flown? Uh, I think the T thirty eight is probably the favorite. Um, the uh, I got a backseat ride once a fighter weapon school. I got a backseat ride in the F fifteen, F fifteen D, D. Yeah, the D is two seater, and that airplane is spectacular. Just amazing performance airplane. Extremely easy to fly. 
I fly on one. I mean, one eleven is twenty times harder to fly than F fifteen is. Mm -hmm. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. No, because there's so many great stories. There, there are so many stories out that that you know that it's such a thrilling environment. Um. Uh, th that it makes a lot of memories. There are a lot of significant emotional events. You know, some a couple times I almost got killed. Uh, just the visuals, the sensations, the people, the stuff I got to do. I mean, it, it's like, no, I never get tired of it. And and we we had a squadron reunion on a cruise ship uh, last uh, year ago, not quite about a year ago, at 79th reunion. And we all got there, and we spent the whole time. We never got off the boat. All we did was sit by the pool. And drink and tell stories, flying stories. I wish I was there. <laughs> well, Jeff, thanks very much for being on the show. Well, I'm really, really um, honored that you asked me to do it. Great time, and uh, I can't wait to. Well, I'm afraid I'll be embarrassed when I see this, and my friends will ridicule me. But I will love watching the other stuff you do. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.